Welcome back to another episode of Speaking to Stacy, the podcast sharing practical advice for an action-driven lifestyle. My name is Stacy Liddell, and today I had the opportunity to speak with a performance coach who works with young athletes and prepares them mentally for a life in sports. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say a big thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in and learn something new. If you found this conversation entertaining or useful, please could I ask you to share the episode with one other person. You never know the positive impact someone's story could have on someone you care about. This week, my guest is Lauren Ammon, a former D1 swimmer for Eastern Michigan University. She faced challenges after her athletic career ended and struggled to adjust to a life without sports. Her experiences inspired her to start Performance Reimagined. This is her business, which helps young athletes improve their mindset and take their performance to the next level. This approach ultimately helps these athletes navigate the experience of having to hang up their boots later on in life. The three key takeaways for this week are 1. How to go about transitioning smoothly from sports to life. 2. Why you should develop self-awareness, improve your communication and cultivate a positive mindset. And 3. Using meditation to improve performance and reduce mental health issues by promoting a calm and focused mindset. If you stick around to the end of the show, you'll learn how Performance Reimagined is making a real impact on athletes' lives. They do this by supporting their goals, promoting a positive mindset, and providing tools to manage overthinking, pressure, and anxiety. So without further ado, I present to you Lauren Ammon. So this week on Speaking to Stacy, I'm excited to introduce my guest, Lauren Ammon, and Lauren as is the custom on this show, would you please give a a brief insight into who you are, your background with sports? Yeah, just so the listeners have some context about your journey, and then we can dive into some questions thereafter. Yeah, absolutely. So I describe myself as a former athlete turned mental performance coach for athlete and mother of developing athletes. So kind of encompassing a number of different perspectives within the athletic world. And the the brief version of how I got here is I started swimming when I was five years old. I have two older sisters who were already swimming. And as the story goes, my mother said I had a significant amount of energy at these swim meets as I was sitting there watching my, or quote unquote, watching my sisters. And I asked for a lot of snacks. And so she said, well, you're here. You've got a lot of energy. Swimming will allow you to do something with that. And maybe I can get away with feeding you maybe fewer snacks. Um, And the rest is history from there. So I swam from the age of five until I graduated high school. So I swam for a club team that entire time. I swam for my high school during that time, or, you know, when I was in high school. And then I had the opportunity to get a full ride scholarship to a D1 program at Eastern Michigan University, where I swam all four years. I ended my career as a Kentucky high school state champion in the 500 free, a third place finisher finisher in the Mid-American Conference in the mile or the 1500 or the 1600 yard free uh, for all the Americans out there. And then from there, I had to transition out of athletics. And at the time, I didn't really know how incredibly hard that was, but found myself in a space where I was wildly uncomfortable not being an athlete anymore. I received my master's degree in human resources where I spent most of my professional career 
And then I found executive coaching as an opportunity to kind of shift into a different gear because I wasn't really happy in corporate America. So I wanted to try something new. And I got into professional coaching, got my year-long certification, started my business really focused on leadership development and career transition because that's what I knew as an HR professional. And about 18 months into that uh, journey, I found myself fulfilled, but not totally. And then the 2020 Olympics hit, which we all know were a year behind schedule due to the pandemic. And it was the night that Simone Biles removed herself from competition as a gymnast. And it was the night that Katie Ledecky won gold in the 1500 meter freestyle for the first time that women ever got to swim it in the Olympics. And while she won gold, it wasn't really necessarily a gold medal performance. She was about 20 seconds off of her world record. And I remember watching her trying to hide emotion, trying to deflect attention away from herself just to be able to get kind of through that moment. And I'm speculating as to what was going through her mind, but I can only imagine it was disappointment, uh, maybe a little sadness, um, you know, kind of all the things that come with, yeah, I have the medal, but I didn't really reflect it myself. And then a couple minutes later in that same telecast here in the United States, Michael Phelps came on and said something that I will never forget. Competing at this level is really overwhelming. We just want someone to talk to. We just want someone who listens, who allows us to be vulnerable and doesn't want to fix us. And it was that moment that it all hit me. And I knew what my purpose was. It was to take the experiences I had as an athlete where I couldn't necessarily figure out how to get my head, how to get out of my own head. And then combining that with the professional experience and the self-work and self-development I've done to finally figure out how to get in my own head and support athletes in doing the same. That's a great, a great insight into your background and where you're coming from. Um, there's a couple of things that I'd like to ask you about that introduction. You mentioned the word athlete quite a lot when describing yourself. So that word seems very important to you. And you also mentioned going through that transition out of sports that it was difficult to to detach yourself from that identity. Um, could you share maybe some insights into something, some of the things that you personally did that helped you to overcome that feeling of, of losing that identity or losing that part of yourself? Is there anything sort of practical that maybe someone going through the same process might that might help yes. them? But I didn't do it when I was going through it in full transparency. I didn't necessarily know at the time that I was going through an identity loss. You know, at 22, it was something that was never really discussed. As I said, I had two older sisters. They swam in college as well. And they never talked about going through this really hard time of, you know, doing something for the majority of all of your life at that point and then it being gone and not knowing what to do with that. So, you know, there were some unhealthy habits that I developed in that moment, you know, just kind of ignoring things and not dealing with them. But it wasn't until I went through a lot of the self-development work and a lot of personal growth work that I realized I had this aha moment one day about two years ago of I had, a, I had a really hard time my last year of swimming. I, I, I didn't perform really well. I was always angry. I didn't get along with my coach. And at the time, I thought it was everyone else. And it wasn't until two years ago, I had this aha moment of, oh my gosh, 
I was mourning the loss of my identity without even knowing it. And then when it finally happened, I didn't know how to deal with it. And then as I started to make that discovery about myself nearly 20 years after the fact, what I started to do was really kind of dive deep into what being an athlete brought me. What what skills did I develop that I thought were only useful in the athletic world and translating them into the quote unquote real world? Some of the things that came up for me were resilience in terms of, you know, really being able to pick myself back up after being knocked down, knocked down hard, knocked down a lot. The idea of being able to face something when I didn't know what was going to happen, right? The idea of going to practice every day, knowing this hard workout was just going to be thrown at you, not knowing what to do, not knowing what it was going to be, how I was going to perform, but figuring out a way to get through it. And there was another skill of, I don't necessarily know how to describe it. I just, I just said like being on stage and being able to perform when others were looking at me, right? I mean, as an athlete, you have a, in my case, a natatorium filled with hundreds, if not thousands of people at any, you know, for whatever the meet may be, everyone's staring at you, everyone's eyes are on you. And, you know, you find a way to step up to the moment and get through it. Whether you perform the way you wanted or you didn't, you still got through it. Or I still got through it. And so those were kind of the three things that came up for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, all this time I was thinking that was only related to my athletic world when really I use those skills every single day. And quite honestly, and I often don't toot my own horn, I'm pretty darn good at them. That's what I would say is maybe one of the most practical tips is just take some time to process the experience, process the years and the you went through it and the dedication and the energy and the love and the tears and the blood and the sweat and all the stuff that went into it. Take some time to process it and celebrate yourself getting through it or coming out the other side when you had no idea what was going to happen. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And if you could go back to that time in your life, would you think that's something that you need to do or should do with the help of a therapist or something like that? Was that something you think you can handle personally? Yeah, that's a hard question. And here's why I say it's hard is because, you know, as an athlete, you know, when your end, most of the time, you know, when your end is coming, we'll, we'll, we'll take, you know, career ending injuries off the table, right? When you're, when you are conscious and you know, when your career is coming to an end, it, it's hard to say that I, I'm going to, that's going to be a long winded question or long winded answer, but yes, it would be awesome to have someone to talk to through that experience. But what makes that hard is that as an athlete, you are working towards that end competition, that, that, that city on a hill that you've been working all these years and all these hours and all these yards or meters or whatever the case may be to get to this moment. And so you're, you're, you're focused in on being able to perform in that moment and it makes it hard to think about what's going to come after it. The, the best analogy I can give is a high school athlete or a high school aged athlete getting ready to go to college and knowing that they're going to perform in college, right? It's this instance of where you want to finish out your high school career at the top of your game, but you know that you've got 
your college career on the horizon. And so it's like you're trying to live in both worlds. And that can be hard. It'd be challenging, right? Because they're two different mindsets. It's closing one chapter and starting another. But I do honestly believe looking back on it, to have someone that is a, a, a therapist or someone like me who is who is trained more in the coaching modality to talk through those things, to get them out, to, to get them moving versus just sitting in the athlete's head and, and hoping to heck that they're all going to work out and that the stress finds its way out and, you know, doesn't affect your performance in any way. Okay. That makes sense. I spoke to a retired rugby player a few months ago and he was saying, he mentioned a few things that, that resonate with what you said. He just said that a lot of the times sports people, or he found in, especially in the rugby group of guys, you know, it's a very high performance, high expectation world. And with that comes all that pressure. You're so stuck or you're so focused on delivering and performing. Like, as you said, you don't think about what's next because you're so in the moment and present that you can't worry about those outside forces, external pressures, or worrying about where your career is going to end, because that might take away from your performance that's coming on the weekend. So you kind of just keep on pushing it off, pushing it off. And then one day you wake up and you're retiring and you're like, oh my God, I I haven't thought about Mm -hmm. the next stage of my career. Yeah, it's very, very interesting how a lot of the sports people, if not all of the sports people have had such similar stories in different sports and different situations and different contexts. Yeah. And and that's what I found too, is that it, it's, it's agnostic in terms of, it doesn't matter if you're a rugby player, a swimmer, a golfer, a runner, um, um, you know, football player, soccer, or American football player, the context may be slightly different, but the, the themes and the experiences kind of transcend any sport. And that's what you know, I, in terms of, of my uh, intro of like a former athlete turned coach who works on the mental side of the game with athletes turned mother of athletes, like I can't get out of it because I, I love being around athletes or I should say I don't want to get out of it because I love being around athletes and the the shared experiences and the shared understanding and empathy of everything that goes into being an athlete, regardless of the level that you aspire to or actually make, right? I mean, talent is relative. So, you know, reaching the D1 level in some ways is relatively similar to, to the Olympics. I, I, I'm, please don't, I'm not diminishing any, any Olympian out there, but just saying that the, the, that the mental and the emotional side of it can transcend. Um, and that's what makes being an athlete so incredibly special and really does take some work to figure out how to how, how to make sense of it in some respects. Yeah, got you. Before we move on to something else, a bell kind of went off for me, is you mentioned your age when you stopped. So you said you were 22 years old, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so do you maybe think that because you were younger when you stopped, that idea that you didn't really look at it as a identity loss or think of it as an identity loss back then, do you think that maybe that was a a case of maturity or lack of maturity to understand what was happening to you 
And you think if you'd pursued a career in swimming and, and were older, maybe it would have been easier to come to terms with that fact? This is a great question. And what came up when you asked that is, was it maybe, well, maybe a lack of maturity. I'm not going to say I was the most mature 22-year-old. But what really resonated when you asked that question was more of a lack of awareness. You know, when I was younger and anyone ever asked me what I did or, you know, swimming was always a part of the response, right? I, I wore it as a badge of honor, not to show off or boast, but because being a swimmer was just so, it felt so natural to me. You know, I don't come from a family of swimmers, neither my mom nor my dad can swim. Uh, In fact, we were put into swimming because my father almost drowned at four when he was a young boy. And he just said, after becoming a father, I just want my children to know how to swim as as more of a life-saving technique than anything else. But it was just something that I I was so appreciative of. I was so I, I often use this word. I was in love with the sport of swimming. It it was just the space where I felt so much like myself. Uh, I just felt comfortable and free in a way to to just see what could happen, particularly in the younger years before my mind started kind of getting you know in the way. But it was always just a part of me, and I th- I think that is where the 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 line started to blur in terms of me as a human and me as a swimmer. I allowed those lines to blur because I didn't know any differently, and the feeling that I had about swimming was so incredibly intoxicating. It was like, oh, well, this is this this is natural. This is okay. But when I got older, again, I think it was a lack more of a lack of awareness. No one ever talked about it. It never came up in conversation about retiring athletes. And I was, you know, when I was a freshman, I still saw when I was, a, you know, my first year in college, I still saw the seniors after they graduated and none of them ever talked about it. And my good roommates who were a year older than me never talked about it. And it was when I got there, I felt this like, well, am I the only one who's going through this? Am I the only one who doesn't know how to handle this? Why is this so incredibly hard for me and no one else? And it it literally wasn't in the last two years that I've met so many former athletes just in the line of work. And every single one of them talk about the transition and how hard it was and how blindsided they were by this loss of identity and this this stepping into this realm of in a world where they knew nothing about, they didn't know the rules and no one was telling us the rules. And we didn't know how to, how to find ourselves in this new space and without a team and without a coach and without someone being like, here's what you do. Here's how you go. You live your life. That I think is the hardest part is, you know, you're so used to your trainer giving you the workout, your coach giving you the workout, a nutritionist telling you what to eat, your parents helping you, you know, when you're younger, you know, you're always in this regimented world. You get out and you're kind of like, wait a minute, I have to figure this out on my own. I don't know that I've developed that skill quite yet or, or uh, the skill in that way. But that, that was it for me. I think it was just a lack of awareness and feeling really, really, really alone. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And is there a specific reason as to why you stopped at such a young age, I know that you mentioned that you felt your performances weren't great in your final year of swimming. 
what exactly, if you don't mind sharing, what were the reasons for slowing down at such a young age? Well, you know, here in the U.S., uh, swimming is a very, very competitive sport. And, uh, you know, I was at the, my senior year of college and I wasn't, you know, a, Olympic level caliber. And so there really was no other option. Um, I mean, I could have gone into what we call here in the U.S. master swimming, where it's anybody who, you know, wants to go on a team that is filled more with adults than, you know, those who are in competitive racing ages. and. I didn't continue in that respect because of my last year. I, I didn't have a great last year. And again, I now realize why. Um, but I was so, in in the early stages of retirement, I was still resentful that I didn't have a great year, that I didn't have a great meet the last time I ever swam. And I was bummed and sad and didn't feel connected. So I just okay. said... I'm gonna. I'm there. I'm not gonna take the next step in swimming. Okay. I just wanted to clear something up f- for me f- to understand the American system. I'm a South African, so our system is very different to yours in terms of sports and and going to college, or we call it university or varsity. Is it a requirement for someone pursuing sports to, or a professional career in sports, to go and get educated at university or college, or? Can you enter professional sports without a degree behind you? The reason why I ask is because you often see the big sports like basketball. The students come from these prestigious sports universities. Now, is that a result of, well, that's the best way to get spotted as going from high school to college, you play for a big college and then you get drafted into the NBA or the NFL? Or is that the way that the system is set up so that if you don't succeed as a sports person, you have a plan to fall back on with your college degree. <laughs> kind of in the middle, and it depends on the sport. Um, so the rules have changed in a couple. So there are a couple. So, um, you know, Kobe Bryant, if you're familiar uh, as a basketball player, he did not go to college. LeBron James did not go to college. And I'm, I'm challenging my own sports trivia here. I believe they changed the rule, and I think you have to have at least two years of college uh, to go into bas- to, to, to be drafted in the NBA. Anybody who's listening, please check me on that. Football, that you have to have some, or at least if, again, I'm remembering, they may have changed the rules. American football, you uh, have to have some behind you, partly because particularly in some sports like American football, as a young 18-year-old, you'll never survive against these mm-hmm. Guys who are, you know, 330 pounds and, you know, whatever the case may be. And again, it depends on the sport. I I think most Americans choose to go to college to have a university to have more development years, particularly in professional sports, because, you know, you're you're playing against more developed uh, people. Again, like there are some. Uh, exceptions to the rule like LeBron or Kobe or um, others, but it just, it helps to as years of development. I remember very distinctly the jump from high school. I was a rugby player. So I went from high school rugby into university rugby. I suffered quite a bad injury um, to my hand first and then to my knee. So I stopped rugby also at a young age, but I remember that physicality, that jump in physicality from under 19 rugby at high school to under 21 rugby being quite big. So I can only imagine the next jump to open rugby, which is 
anybody, any age, any size being a very physical experience. And so I can imagine with football, it would make sense to almost delay that a little bit so that you can get time for your body to fill out, to grow, to deal with the the bigger hits and the bigger impact. So, okay, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And it's a different game. It, in some respects, it's a different game, different rules, different, you know, things that go on. I mean, relatively it's the same game, but you know, as you, as you kind of develop to the game, depending on the sport does change. Yes. Well, with rugby, that's as clear as day. So at high school, the brand of rugby is very different once you get to the university level, because the university level becomes kind of if you don't make it straight out of high school, which is really tough, because in South Africa, rugby is basically like your football, American football. It's yeah. super competitive. Everybody wants to be a Springbok, which is our national team. And jumping from high school into that national side is you have to be an exceptional talent to and genetically gifted as well, because you obviously have to be big enough to compete at that level. So the the varsity sports becomes the feeding ground or the, the feeder schools to the provincial teams which then feed into the national teams and so the players that make it from the varsity sides have to be at a certain level and compete enough or be competitive enough to break into those national teams mm-hmm. yeah the last thing before we 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 go on sorry every time i say it's the last thing then you mention something <laughs> and then we, <laughs> we continue so i wanted to find out from from you specifically is there anything that jumps out at you as to why you found it so difficult to move on from sports? Was it, was it predominantly a mental thing or, you know, what made it so difficult to transition away from sports for you? Oh gosh. <laughs> there, I think there were a couple things. One, because my last year was not great and I didn't perform really well. Right. And it was that, what I had in my head, whether I said this to myself or not, or whether I was truly conscious of it or not, was like, I've swam for 17 years. This better be the best year I've ever had. I better be the fastest. I better be, you know, whatever the case may be. I better swim the best I have ever done at the end of the year because this is it, right? And I think that when that didn't happen, it made it, gosh, I don't know that I've ever articulated this. It felt like there was a hole. Like it felt, I almost felt like an incomplete experience in some ways. And I remember just being really sad about it and really sad that I didn't rise to the level that I knew I could. Um, and I, I felt really disappointed and that made it really hard. And I think another part of that is because I loved the sport so much. And I, I mean, I genuinely, I, I am one of the rare people that did one sport and, and stayed there and didn't have injuries and, uh, you know, didn't get burned out, you know, was never felt pressured to stay or leave or whatever the case may be. I, I, I genuinely loved the sport. And, and it was this big it was almost like an ugly breakup if I can use kind of a an offhand analogy of like I was still in love he walked away it was kind of this like oh I just want you back kind of situation and again I don't know if I've ever articulated it that way either but that's what it felt like it felt like I I had some I had more 
and I didn't know how to get it out. And there was no chance for me to ever reclaim what I thought I could. Those are the two big things. Um, And then the third was really like, I, I didn't have a planned life anymore. I I mean, there was, there were days I would wake up at in the beginning, you know, the, the few weeks after I stopped swimming, I was like, Oh, this is fun. I can be a regular college student for two months. Yay. Let's do this. But when that kind of settled in, it was kind of like, well, I don't really have a lot to do and I'm kind of bored and I don't know how to like jumpstart my own routine. I've always had someone just tell me what to do. That is, I think those those were the three big things. Yeah, that's super interesting because I I remember that exact same experience. Although I didn't pursue rugby um, professionally or at a higher level, sport to me was always very much. I don't want to say it was always a distraction, but when I reflect on my life, it sometimes feels like it was, if not a, a distraction, it was certainly a place where I could disappear to and be myself and excel and not worry about everything outside. It, it, it's very difficult to be performing as a sports person if your mind is elsewhere thinking about other things. So it, it really kind of grounded me and centered me when I was playing sports and got me away from the outside world. And for me at the time, it was, it was very important. I was going through a lot of personal problems. And so when my when I suddenly had to stop playing rugby because of an unexpected injury, I didn't get injured playing sports. I got injured out uh, partying one night and I cut my hand very, very badly on, on glass. I slipped and I, I put my hand out and glass cut my tendon in my right hand for my thumb. And so that was it. That was the end of my season. For And all of a sudden I realized rugby was keeping me in a regiment like you described in a routine there was a, a very routine almost like militaristic way i lived my life monday i did this tuesday this wednesday this thursday this friday i didn't go out and party because rugby games were on saturday morning and then after rugby i'd spend some time with the guys and then it would be off to see the girlfriend and then sunday would be a day of rest and repeat so mm-hmm. once that all disappeared in my personal experience i very quickly things things started falling apart for me and I had a very, very rough year or two after that as a result. It's only when I look back now that I see that really the straw that broke the camel's back was losing that, that routine and that regiment to my life and how disruptive that can be for somebody. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head too, is this this escape in some ways, right? You know, I mean I I can remember that if I was having a bad day at school, whether it be when I was in high school or or, um, university or college, you know, just be like, oh, I can't wait to get to practice. I can't wait just to dive in to a pool, stare at a black line and just not think, think about everything and nothing all at the same time. That was, that was part of it too. And then when you take that away and and it's such a significant part, right? I mean, um, depending on your sport, I mean, there were times when I was practicing four or five hours a day. And, you know, when you don't necessarily have that release anymore, that's where all that energy inside of your body gets stored. And that's where it starts to truly affect what goes through your mind and how you deal with it. 
And I think another thing that I that I didn't realize then that I realize now as I'm, as you also mentioned self awareness, I've definitely become more aware of of these things as I've as I've grown up. I'm 33, so in my 20s, I didn't think about things like the knock-on effect of sports in a positive way. So, for example, all the all the chemical changes and all the the self-confidence changes that I had when I was playing sports, that once those kind of left, I didn't realize the impact that it had on me in, in terms of my physiological mental state. So now I, I've been training. I do. I love the gym. So I go to the gym um, a minimum of three times a week, and I do some road running as well. And I, I now can feel that lift in energy, that lift in sort of good, happy hormones that I get from exercise. And when I was younger and suddenly that all went away without realizing it, I lost all of those benefits as well, um, which didn't help for someone who's struggling with other things in his personal life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is true. And, 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 you know, I can, it, it's understandable when non-athletes, you know, can get annoyed with the athletes of like, yeah, you get so much energy from working out. Uh, you, you do. I mean, once you get into the habit and it becomes part of your life, even in the days where you are so tired and you don't want to move your body at all, taking that first five minutes just to get started completely shifts your whole life. And that, that I think is part of the, the, the come down effect or to, you know, the, 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 you know, transition effect too, is that it, it stops cold Turkey, right? It, regardless if, you end because you know you're ending or an injury or whatever the case may be. It is cold turkey. There is no like, oh, I'll just gradually come down the hill and, you know, make sure that I find my way, like kind of wean myself off of this. No, you reach the top of the mountain, you fall right off or you, you or you roll back down all the way down the hill. And physiologically, that is a, that is a big transition. You know, I mean, most athletes are are accustomed to burning hundreds, if not a couple thousands of calories a day. And, and it's not about burning the calories. It's about utilizing that energy and having it go somewhere, be displaced. And when you stop cold Turkey and then all of a sudden that energy and you're like, I don't know, I, I really don't know what to do with it or how to displace it at the same level. Uh, and then transparently that's been kind of my journey since stopping is like, how do I, replicate the same kind of energy dispersion without needing five hours a day to do so. Um, and even at 40, it's still kind of a, it's still hard to do. Yeah. That's really funny. Uh, the listeners wouldn't have been able to see, but I was, I was smiling when Lauren was explaining the situation because it reminded me last year I had a knee surgery. So when I was in my twenties, I had a knee operation and then about four, five years later, the knee started giving me, same knee started giving me troubles again. But I financially wasn't in a very good place um, to get it sorted out because in South Africa, unfortunately, if you want a good surgeon, you're going to have to go into the private healthcare system. It's really, really expensive. So I've eventually now got it fixed when I was, while I've been living in South Korea last year. And a couple of weeks after I'd recovered, my wife would say things to me like, I can't wait 
till you can go back to gym or you can go for a run because you're really starting to annoy me. Your energy levels are really, really annoying um, because I was I was struggling to to get out that energy as Lauren's describing there. Um, so get you know getting a little bit antsy and and almost getting a bit annoying to people around me because I don't I didn't know how else to release the energy but to kind of you know just move and talk too much and pace around the house so <laughs> it's very interesting that you that you touched on on that sort of energy displacement as you described it yeah Lauren um well wow, that's a really nice uh, fascinating insight into into what you think about leaving the sports and and your personal experience maybe we can move on to and you can describe and go into a little bit more detail about what you're currently doing now because I think your current work sets you up to to be the perfect person to speak to to talk about um, some of the other issues that I wanted to bring up later in the conversation about mental health and also in helping other athletes with this whole transitioning process so would you do you mind sharing with the listeners sort of what you do now and then we can we can maybe try and look at um, some practical tips or advice that you have used or implemented in the past can help other people. Yeah. Um, I mean, simply put, I work with athletes, student athletes or, or younger, more high school to, to university age athletes to train their minds like they train their bodies. And the idea is really the biggest aha is really about supporting athletes, particularly as they are growing and developing physically, mentally, and emotionally during some of their most accelerated de- developmental years to build that self-awareness and to support them in kind of, not in kind of, to support them in finding the balance between who they are and how they present themselves as an athlete but then balancing them with that of who they are as a human. It's really about raising awareness behind the thoughts and emotions they experience both on and off the field, how that relates to the actions they take and what that really means for them, right? I mean, we, we work on the, um, you know, things like performance anxiety or what, what I call the inner opponent or that voice inside your head that is, you know, always raises the doubt and the fear and the worry of what might come if I don't do X, right? Or if I do X, you know, whatever the case may be. So we focus on a lot of the things that athletes struggle with mentally, but it really is in the context of supporting them both on and off the field, because what they experience in the classroom or with their friends or with their family or whatever the case may be has an effect on their performance, whether they realize it or not and vice versa. And so getting them to realize how their entire experience, both as an athlete and as a quote, as a, as a quote unquote general human, um, how they affect one another and being able to raise awareness in terms of what are those thoughts and emotions mean? How are they affecting you? And if they're not working for you, how do we repurpose them? That's incredible. And what age are you talking about when you when you are speaking to these people? Are they starting from a young age, or is it is it more sort of the college age student? Uh, well, really, it started out to be more of the high school age student. So think kind of a thirteen to fourteen year old, all the way up to somebody who would be in college or university, kind of that twenty two, twenty three year old. 
Um, but what we're finding more and more is that um, clients as young as 11 or 12 are, you know, really starting to seek support in terms of how to manage the mental side of the game. You know, I've, I have the opportunity to work with some very successful and very ambitious young athletes who, you know, want to take their talents to college, who want to take their talents well beyond college. And they and their parents are starting to recognize that this is part of a total game plan, a holistic game plan for an athlete, but can also be uh, a differentiator in terms of, you know, not necessarily to win, 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 but to support their athletes in developing in a way that is effective and conducive to mental well-being and mental peace and calm versus the chaos and anxiety that can come not just with life in general, but, you know, modern life, uh, which tends to be seemingly different than what it was even just 20 years ago. Yes, definitely. Great point at the end there. I'll, I'll return to that. I've actually got a question specifically based on that. Yeah, I can imagine it's one of those things where younger is better because it starts that process of awareness earlier. And so you learn how to, to process things better as you age. So that makes a lot of sense. I wonder, you, you said sort of the holistic, it's a holistic approach, right? So I wonder, is there a specific way to to try and connect the athlete to the bigger picture? So for example, um, conversations with various team sports players, um, predominantly rugby players, because that's sort of my background. So I've had a, I've had the fortune, or I've been fortunate enough to speak to a few rugby players who've, ha- who've had experience in the professional game, and they said the best teams that they played for didn't play only for performance, like you mentioned. It's not just about winning and winning and winning every week. One example was our local side in, in the Western Cape, in Cape Town. They're called the Stormers. And their sort of mantra for the season, for one season was, let's make Cape Town smile again. So it's not just about winning. It's about getting the community to feel uplifted, to make the people who support and love rugby to feel like they're part of the, the, the rugby experience and to, to, to make the city almost um, feel better about itself. So how do you, are there ways that you can, going back to what you said about that holistic approach, is there are there ways that you can make the, the athlete think, okay, yes, winning is important because at the end of the day, sports is a results business. But as an individual, there's other things that 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 you need to be concerned with. How do you how do you kind of make them come to terms with that? Yeah, well, like anything, it's a journey, um, and I am very cognizant to introduce that concept slowly, empathetically, and with compassion around it. Because, you know, the last thing I want to do is say to an athlete, oh, well, you know, just 20 years from now, you're not going to worry about how you performed, you know, today, because that's not fair, right? They're living in the here and now, and this is their world, and so being able being dismissive in terms of what that looks like, right? And and I say this because before I got into this space and before I became really self-aware, I said that to my son and I and I'm very open about that. And you know, he was a little younger and what I was trying to say to him was exactly what we're talking about that that your 
experience as an athlete is, is, is much more impactful than the, the win and loss record that you have by the time you're done. But the way that it came out after I said it, I was like, Oh no, that's not. And you know, I just saw the look on his face and I was like, Oh, so I actually use that experience in coaching to, to remind myself that, okay, right. You, you've been there, you know how this is going to go, but this is an opportunity to support them. So it's really talking about starting laying the groundwork in terms of there are multiple things that lead up to this outcome, right? You don't just show up, you know, at a rugby match or at a swim meet and, you know, you're, you just go, right? You, you've done X, Y, and Z and everything, or, you know, everything before and after to get yourself there. So it's starting, it's about starting to appreciate the process that they're going through. And uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, tying awareness to those experiences, right? So getting them to to be able to notice and later talk about what they're thinking in those moments, what they're what emotions they're experiencing in those moments, and getting them to be, as you talked about before, just more present in the experience. And if I'm being fully transparent, you know, when I was younger. What I was saying is that I wasn't necessarily, I was present, but I wasn't present and that I was very present in the moment, but I wasn't present in terms of, okay, what do these thoughts really mean for me? Like, what are they actually leading to? And then how do I tie what I'm thinking to the thing, to the emotions that I'm feeling? And then how is that then translating to how I act or how I show up? Because that was the biggest aha moment for me later in my life when I started to figure out how to manage the mental game, regardless of what situation I was dealing with was what are the thoughts that I'm thinking? What impact does that have on the emotions I'm experiencing? What does that mean in terms of how I act? And that's what we really, that's the first concept we really start talking about with athletes is to gain the awareness that all of those things are interconnected. And at the end of the day, when we can manage your thoughts or change beliefs you have about yourself, that's when we can really start to make the impact. That's how we start to get them to be more appreciative and present in the process versus the end result. Because, And I'll throw this last thing in here too, because I was actually just talking to someone else the other day, and it was this idea that we, no matter what we're doing, we as humans are not owed the end result that we're working towards. And when he said that to me, it was that big aha moment of, I love those words. And as a 40 year old adult that has gone through a significant amount of personal development work and years of, of, you know, just trying to rewire my brain, that makes sense to me. So how can I use that concept now too to translate to athletes to say in a very compassionate way, who's to say you're owed what you want how do we focus more on how you how you're getting yourself there versus what may come of it? Yeah, and that opens up a whole rabbit hole in our modern society. About you know, you always hear people say, "Well, you just got to work harder. You just got to do this, do that." And a lot of what I'm hearing from speaking to a lot of sports people lately is sometimes it's not necessarily only about the hard work. It's also about right time, right place. So, for example, you could graduate from high school in 
and be the best swimmer or the best rugby player in your team. But then you go to a provincial setup and all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, there's guys that are 25, 26. They're seven, eight years older than me. They've been playing professional rugby for four or five years and they are better than me. Now, how do I fit into that picture? Or now my hard work seems insignificant because they're working just as hard, if not harder than me. But now I'm I'm not able to make the, the team anymore. And hard work doesn't re- doesn't really seem to matter at that level as much as, well, now somebody gets injured and you've got an opportunity. So there's kind of this, this interesting dynamic of, yes, obviously you have to work hard as an athlete, but your circumstances and your timing, the things that you can't control are also really important. And it's important to understand that as an athlete, that you might be doing everything possible to make it, yet still find it challenging to actually achieve the outcome. Let's say your goal is to become an American Olympian for a sport. It might still not happen based on other factors. And it's quite a kind of, it's a really, it's a really tough thing to explain to young people because as you said, you know, you don't want to discourage them. You don't want to chase them away from pursuing a career in sports, but the, there also has to be some kind of realistic conversation with children or kids or young adults about these things. You don't really want to encourage young people to pursue a career in sports and give them the wrong idea. And then they turn around one day and they say, well, you know, you, I was basically lied to this entire time. You told me that all I had to do was work hard and now I haven't made it. So beyond, why weren't you honest with me? Yeah. And you, yes. And, and I think at least here in America, this whole, you know, name image likeness, we can talk about that. That's a whole nother topic for a whole nother day. I could potentially um, make that situation worse. Uh, just being paid for your name, image and likeness here now in the United States. But anyway, put that aside for right now. Um, but what came up for me is when you talk, when you said that was, it's, it's this concept of embracing, right? A, a lot of times I hear the word surrender. I hear the word accept, I'm very, I'm a very linguistic person. So I'm very conscious of the words I use and surrender and accept to me have a connotation of there's, there's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm powerless, right? I'm just surrendering to the, the situation or I'm accepting what it is. But if you make that slight switch in terms of using the word embrace, it's about embracing the entire experience. Cause you're absolutely right, right? All you got to do is that you, if you work hard, you can achieve anything great foundation to build from, not completely and utterly realistic. But if you add that nuance of embracing what you experience as you go through it, recognizing you're not always in control. The only thing you can control is yourself. And there's oftentimes I use this phrase with with, uh, athletes, you're in control, but you're not in charge. Meaning from head to toe, that's what you control. You are not in charge of whatever a coach does, whatever another competitor does, the time frame you're born in, the 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 talent you're up against, none of that. But if you can learn to embrace as an athlete the the ups and downs and know and and, and believe, let me say this, and believe that by the by the end of your career it will have leveled out in some respects. You know, there there will be peaks and valleys, but by the time it will be fairly consistent and embrace that, 
that is a huge game changer, right? And the earlier you can embody that belief, the more successful I truly believe an athlete will be. So one of the, well, three of the things that I've really picked up on what what you've said so far is awareness, communication, and basically psychology, sports psychology. And I have noticed it's definitely become more prevalent in the last, not maybe not even 10 years, maybe the last five years or so. You're starting to see more and more conversations about these kind of topics, you know, people being aware of their mental state, people communicating, talking about it. It's okay to share your, your, your mental journey as well as, as your up, your successes. It's, it's also good to talk about your failures and, and the issues that you, that you've been working through as an athlete. I guess what I'm trying to find out from you is uh, get get your thoughts on this. Do you think that the mental health side of things has shifted and changed and we're seeing more people struggle and combat with with mental health issues? Or do you think it's the fact that we live in a, in a different world now than as you mentioned than we did 20 or 30 years ago when people didn't talk about these things especially athletes because as you've mentioned in, in previous podcasts that I've listened to you speak on, there there was this this sort of taboo feeling of if I speak about my mental issues, I'm I'm a weak person and as a sports person, I don't want to show people that I've I've got any weaknesses because then they can kind of use that as a as an edge to beat me in competition. Um or do you think maybe there's there's a combination of factors there that we live in a very social media age or a technological age where everybody's sharing and talking about things. So there's more, there's more visibility into that side of things. Sorry, I know it's a long winded question. It's just, it's such a complicated question. That's why I just wanted to flesh it out for you. What, what do you, what do you think, what do you, what are your thoughts about the sudden sort of the, the rise of, of mental health issues within sports people, or do you think it's always been there and now it's just a visibility issue? I, I land in the camp of it's a, combination of all these factors, right? The challenges that I work with athletes on were the same challenges that I faced or, 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 you know, potentially any of my peers faced, but the way that they're coming out is different. Right. And I, and I think, you know, there is about, you know, with social media and so much information being shared, I think there is more visibility into this, but I also think that it's also been kind of turned up a notch from 20 years ago or, you know, whenever I was growing up as an athlete or, you know, any older generations as athletes. And I think that stems from just how society has evolved. And because there is so much more information at our fingertips, but that doesn't mean that information is all true or all right or all accurate. And, I believe that the, the I don't want to say severity, but the uh, intensity, I'll say intensity, is turned up because of things like social media, right? Like everyone now has an opportunity to speak on something and share their input or share their opinion. And that plays with our minds, right? It, 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 like regardless of of, you know, how often you may have been or how long you've been working on yourself or, you know, how many, you know, personal development or, you know, whatever therapy sessions, coaching sessions, whatever you have, like sometimes that stuff really plays with your mind. 
whether you're an athlete or not. And I think that's what's happening. It's a combination of it's always been there, though we didn't necessarily talk about it. The intensity and in, in, uh, quantity of information has turned up. And then all of that combined without addressing it has turned up the intensity of what people are experiencing, particularly athletes. In you know, it's I just think back to some of the the pro athletes here who have who have stepped up and started talking about some of their mental uh, well being challenges, and you know, even big organizations like the National Basketball Association, the NBA, you know, saying like, you know, Kevin Love had an episode in the middle of a game, and there was literally no one to support him. And so this is the NBA for crying out loud; they make billions of dollars. So I think like. Society has evolved way quicker than our understanding or maybe even our uh, willingness to embrace what is actually going on. I think it's really interesting what you mentioned about about the social media and the impact there. I, I often think of it like when I was at school, and I'm sure it was the same for you, smartphones weren't as big a thing, if a thing at all, to be honest. If, I, I mean, coming from South Africa, I think we were a little bit behind um, the American um, model. So we didn't have social media. We didn't have these smartphones that were always connected to the internet. So an analogy is, let's say you do something at school that was a bit silly and you get teased for it maybe for a couple of days. Maybe at worst, you do something really silly and you get you get teased till the end of the semester and then people go on holiday and they forget about it. Nowadays, you don't forget about it. It's constantly, you're constantly reminded of it because someone saves it in video format or somebody makes a tweet about it. And so you get that constant reminder. You never disconnect from your, from, from the good or the bad. And I think that has to play into the experience of some of these athletes. You have a bad performance. Now everybody jumps online and everyone suddenly becomes uh, an incredible sports journalist or everyone's opinion is is suddenly worth <laughs> worth um huge amounts and starts criticizing commenting breaking down your performance and you should have done this you should have done that you're useless it has to play into it's just like an overexposure that these athletes are getting so i wonder if there are a couple of um, massive people on social media who engage on social media as in they post but they don't read and I wonder if that's not a good strategy as your profile grows as an athlete or to have someone manage your, your account and really try not to read the comments and things like that. Because I think, as you said, you know, regardless of who you are, it's going to be very difficult to ignore that hate or that sort of criticism online, even though you don't know these people and they don't know you and they don't know what you're going through. So. Yeah, I wonder, do you, what, would you, what, what would you kind of, what do you think you'd recommend to somebody who's on the up and coming, um, or on the come up and is, is having trouble with, with the social media? Is that something you've ever had to think about or manage with an athlete? Not yet, actually. You know, when, when it comes up and I will often ask, uh, particularly on the younger uh, athletes of the parents, like how, how much um, social media exposure do they have? And, you know, certainly they're not in a position yet as an athlete to have so much exposure. But the other, the flip side of social media is that if you do something, right, 
th- that immediate thought is, oh my gosh, who's going to find out about it or who might post something, right? It's this like anticipatory, it's anxiety, right? It's this anticipation worry of, oh my gosh, who might know what might they say if this gets out there, right? Because that's kind of the world we live in, right? So I always like to at least preempt and understand how much exposure those more in kind of the 11 pre-teenage uh, have exposed to it. And, you know, quite honestly, some of them haven't even seen any of it. Um, but when I do ask or work with teenage or more, you know, high school, kind of somewhere in that 16 to 17, 18 year range, they don't necessarily talk about it so much, but there's a part of me that wonders, is it so normalized for them? Do they see the effect or is it just, why would I question it? Because this is what my life has always been kind of thing. Yeah. And maybe that's why there's this intensity when it comes to, you know, hearing about mental unrest or, you know, mental health or, you know, whatever the case may be is because it's kind of normal for those, especially in the younger age who have grown up in this world and wouldn't have any clue that it was ever any different. I just had a cold shiver um, thinking about my experiences as, as a South African with, with um, the, what has basically become normal or normalized in our, in our culture as the levels of crime in South Africa I'm not sure if you're aware, are quite high for compared to other nations. And there's this background sort of stress and anxiety that you learn to become comfortable with growing up and living in South Africa. And you only realize it once you leave. So I now live in South Korea, which is on like the other end of the spectrum. South Korea is so safe. The city that I live in is, it's almost bizarre. It, it sometimes feels like I, I'm not even living on the same planet. That's how safe it is. And so going back to that, uh, being a South African, you, you get you get used to that like low level anxiety that's always there. And you don't realize that, that you're experiencing sort of chronic anxiety and stress until you leave. And then you have this massive weight that seems to have lifted off your shoulders. It just ties into what you're saying about younger people and their, and their use of social media and cell phones. They don't know any better. They don't know any different. So why would they question it? Yeah, that's very, very uh, insightful. It's a great perspective. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about self-belief because I had the opportunity and it was one of the best things I did. I went, after I finished playing rugby, I went back and I coached young younger people. They were all in the ages of around 10 to 12 years old. And I feel like that's a great time to to get involved and in, in, and help youngsters because they're kind of at that age where they they know enough about the game that you don't have to explain all the basics, but they're not quite at the at the level where they've where they feel like they've learned everything. So they they're still trying to soak up as much knowledge and information as possible. So it's a great age to teach. But I experienced something very interesting as a coach when I was coaching youngsters. I had a group of players in my first year that were on a on a talent scale. And I don't mean to, it's not to berate them or anything. It's just to try and make my point. They would, I would, I would say on a talent scale, maybe they were about a seven out of 10. So they weren't, they were talented, but they weren't the most talented. Mm-hmm. Um, but on a self-belief scale, they were 10 out of 10. They really, really backed themselves in any situation. And in my personal opinion, 
that self-belief factor overcame their deficits in talent because they were willing to do things that other other teams weren't. And then the following year, I had an extremely talented side. They would I would say they were probably nine out of ten out of talent. But in terms of self-belief, they were I don't want to be too critical of them because they were young people, but they were way down on the self-belief. And and for me as a coach, that was way more challenging to to overcome than talent or performance because as a coach, I knew how to to train skills and fundamentals to improve performance, but I didn't know how to train self-belief. To me, as somebody, I never had to worry about self-belief because uh, I always had a very good connection with with my own self and my self-belief. I was a very, very positive, competitive, confident young person. So I'd never had to, to think about these kinds of things. And they made me realize, oh, wow, like, what do I do now? How do I, how do I coach self-belief? Do you have some some basic pointers, especially for younger people who are battling with that that self belief angle and how they can improve self belief? Yeah, that that self you you bring up such a good point in terms of like when it comes to performance, it's it's easier to coach someone into talent right? or to, to someone into a skill, like develop their talent versus the hard skills, let's call them the hard skills versus the soft skills. And what do 95% of coaches focus on the hard skills? Cause that's what they know, right? That the other side is tough, but the basics I think really start with the belief that your beliefs can be changed, mm. right? You know, we as humans fall into the cycle that we hang on to every thought our mind adopts and you you don't have to right you you have an opportunity to choose what you think you have an opportunity to choose the emotions that you experience now that's not to say that is easy by any means it first starts with awareness that things can be different and i don't mean to discourage but it is a lifelong process simply because we as humans, once we're born, evolve pretty darn quickly, right? You know, the, our basic anatomy doesn't hasn't evolved much in, you know, however long we've been here. But this, our mind, evolves very quickly. And there's an opportunity to be more intentional about how it develops. And, uh, you know, take time to interrupt patterns that we adopt for ourselves, right? So I'll give an example, a very personal example of my my younger son uh, was diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, we've we've created or we've we've found some quote unquote non traditional non medicinal uh, therapies for him, and I've even started introducing meditation into his routine. And simply because one to teach him at the at, at a young age, and as his brain is developing very quickly there is a way to pause. There is a way to take breaks, to reduce the noise, whether that be literal or figurative that comes into your life to process what you go through. So I think those are the basics. It's about awareness that you can think differently. You can change the way that your brain operates and to bring in different things 
that particularly, I'm talking about it from an athletic point of view, that you may not necessarily believe will quote unquote help you, right? You know, had someone told me at 16 or 15 years old, hey, go meditate for <laughs> 10 minutes, just take some time just to relax and don't do a darn thing. I'd be like, uh, are you crazy? But now that I've done it for myself and I do it every morning, that 10 minutes or five minutes or however long I have, you know, whatever time I can fit in, it's unbelievable. And, and just to be able to have this pause, this, this break, and particularly going back to what we were talking about with modern society of like, there's always something coming in from somewhere and that's now normalized for all of us. And so it takes effort to change that, right? I mean, I firmly believe that everything, not everything, our environment creates a lot of what we experience every single day, right? I kind of tend to be more on the nurture side versus the nature side. I know nature plays a part, but I think nurture or our environment is the thing that either accelerates what nature intended or decelerates what nature intended, depending on how you're looking at it. And so for us, it is about managing our environment differently if that environment is not working for us. And I think that's where that self-belief comes in is just knowing in your heart of hearts that what you think about yourself can be changed. It does take a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. It does take a lot of hard work. (laughs) But if you can embrace the experiences that you go through and understand that you can look at yourself differently and know that it can be changed, that is the biggest aha. All right. That's not always easy for 11 or 12 year olds to understand. Yeah. Um, Because I do, I I have a 12 year old and you know, every day I just repeat, you know, if there, if you believe something, sweetheart, and it's not necessarily working for you, what is another way that you can look at it? A simple question. What's another way you can look at it? Even if you don't believe it, what's the, or even simply, what's the total opposite that you don't believe in yourself? What's the total opposite of what would it sound like to totally believe in yourself? And just hearing those words sometimes that you say out of your mouth, you think, oh yeah, I guess I can think a little differently. And it's a matter of ingraining that thought into your head repeatedly. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think as as an adult, I don't have kids, but I, I would imagine I've got younger siblings that are much younger than me. My brother is 19 years old and my younger sister is 12 years old. So big gaps there. And I can, you know, I can see it reflected in them as well that sometimes when I give it a piece of advice, I get that kind of look at me like, is he being serious? Is he? Did he seriously just tell me to do that? Um, and but I think that that fact of repetition is important. You know, just to keep on, just keep on at it. Don't, don't, don't be pushy, but also remind them that there, there is another way that they can go about something. And just to try and you, you don't want them to think like you. You want them to think for themselves in a different way. To to you want to open that and, and uh, unlock that that thinking for themselves so that it becomes a tool that they can use, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And you said it perfectly. Again, you do kind of get those looks like, what are you talking about? You sound crazy. Um, And that idea of not thinking for themselves, right? You know, one of the things that I always tell my children is you're allowed to feel whatever you're feeling right now, right? Whether you're mad at me, whether you're mad at your dad, whether whatever you're experiencing, one, it's normal for you and you are allowed to feel it. Right. And, and, and just being able to say something like that to a child of like, oh, okay. 
you know, just giving them awareness that, you know, whatever they're feeling isn't wrong. Is it effective for the situation? Well, that's for them to decide. It's not wrong, but you're like almost acknowledging what they're going through and validating that, that experience for them of just saying, Hey, what you're going through is for you. And it's what you're supposed to be doing right now. And understand that what you're going through is okay. And almost just having those light bulb moments and hoping that as they grow and as they develop, they remember these things, but also that even if they are feeling those emotions and they don't want to, if they can work to change their thoughts behind what those emotions are, first they have to learn to connect them and figure out what they are and articulate them. But if they can do put all those piece, puzzle pieces together, that's how they start to have more self-belief and really start managing their mental game much more intentionally than they would have had we not done these kinds of things. Yeah, that's great. Lauren, I see we, we're approaching that, that hour and a half quite quickly. I'm, I'm very, very grateful for you giving up your time. And we've discussed so much. It's really great. Um, thank you so much for that. There are a couple of things that I want to touch on before we, we do wrap up, if, if that's okay with you. Is, are we yeah, good for time? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Two things that you said there really resonated with me when you spoke about the belief that you can change beliefs and meditation. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with a, with a book called Mindset. It was written by a woman by the name of Carol Dweck. She basically talks about a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. So a fixed mindset person would say something along the lines of, um, I believe what I believe, so there's nothing really I can do about that, and therefore they don't grow and they don't develop, they don't change. Whereas a growth-minded person would say something like, uh, while this is what I believe, I can change my beliefs and I can change my outcomes as a result. So it's very interesting that you mentioned that you know, you've know you got to start off with the belief that you believe things can change, which sounds very much like a growth mindset approach to things. And it's definitely something that I'm way more aware of as I've gotten older. And so again, it's something that you that I think we've both touched on many times is Maybe it's a it's a challenge to get younger people to see these things because it's it's a it's an awareness issue. But being at the adults in the room and understanding that it's an awareness issue, we should be the ones trying to kind of unlock that awareness in younger people. And I was listening to a podcast yesterday about a historian who was speaking about his children and how his children are his greatest accomplishment. And he said one of the things that he's realized as a dad is. He tries not to teach to treat his children as if they are children. And he said he knows that that sounds paradoxical because, you know, they're children, so you should treat them like children. But he says most of the times, when especially when his kids reached around about the age of 10, he said, he realized if he, if he treated them like sort of small um, adults that have like sort of budding adult intelligence, things were much better off for him as a parent. Um, because they understood they didn't always implement to do exactly as he as he sort of advised them to do but at least started that process of them thinking for themselves being self-aware so i think that's also another thing that look it's not not my right to tell other people how to parent their kids but i just feel as if we sometimes don't give young people credit for the for their abilities to think for themselves and to be self-aware and it's and we need to start maybe encouraging that in young people Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, and and part of the that and I I I 
100% agree with everything you just said in terms of, you know, being a parent and, and, and how I approach it. But I also think it's really challenging for adults on the opposite end, right? On the receiving end of the child's behavior or thoughts or words or whatever the case may be, is that there's this, uh, I'm going to say developmental delay, but let me explain what that means. Like their brain is working faster than maybe what their developmentally they can say or articulate really well, right? So they may be going through things that, yes, they 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 know how that they're starting to gain more understanding and awareness for themselves, but it's hard to get that out and to say, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. And I will say that as a mother of boys, I noticed that it can be a little bit more challenging for them to actually express what is going on. Um, and so that's why, uh, and, and you know, I, I have, doing what I do and having been through the training and education that I've been, you know, that, that I may have quote unquote, a little bit more of an advantage. Oh my gosh, he's going to come again. Sorry. He may have, I may have a little bit more of an advantage just because of what I've been through. Um, but I still struggle with it that, uh, you know, that I, I, I'm not saying that we don't struggle all the time or sometimes with our children, but more and more as I step back, I think that's kind of part of the equation is that their brain is evolving faster than their hearts and mind or their hearts and mouths are allowing them to express. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. I agree with that. I, I, I teach in South Korea. So I see that a lot in the classroom as well, where I can see the student knows that they're thinking on the right track. But they haven't really, as you said, almost, it's like they're still developing the means to communicate their thoughts and their thinking. And as a young person, you, yeah, you're still learning how to articulate and you haven't had the same amount of time to reflect on, on what you're trying to say or had the, the life experiences to understand what you're trying to say. So, yeah, that's a very, 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 very good insight and perspective again. Maybe the way we can end it is talking a little bit uh, about meditation because you know the the goal of this of the show is to try and leave people with something that they can take away that they can do as a as a practical tool set and it's something i can't believe i haven't spoken about before because it's something that i do on a daily basis and something that you you mentioned that you try and do on a daily basis as well and that's meditation i'll just give a little bit of back background into my experience so i was one of those people i've always had a very good imagination and i I enjoy like fantasy and fiction and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But when it came to meditation, for some strange reason, I had this belief that it was this sort of airy, fairy, woo-woo thing that like that monks and weird people do on on their, in their free time. And like how wrong I was. Uh, it is honestly one of the most powerful tools in my arsenal that I use to to sort of change my mind mindset or to just as you mentioned earlier quiet down and and not worry about the noise so much the noise obviously i'm talking about the internal noise for me mm -hmm. um that's something sometimes that i something that i struggle with i i'm a person who i think i overthink things so once something gets into my head it just starts bouncing around and meditation gives me an opportunity to release myself from that and in the beginning, when I started, I was like, okay, this is interesting, but it's still a bit strange to me. But then I found I found that the benefits of meditation are long-term. So maybe you mm -hmm. can also share your personal experience about it. So I found with meditation, it's very weird. When I'm meditating, it's almost like I don't really notice the benefits. 
if I stop meditation for a couple of days or a week or so, all of a sudden, I feel as if something's a bit off. And then it's like, ah, I haven't meditated in, in a few days or, or a week or so. Then I start to realize it's, it's, it's almost like the deficit of the meditation makes me aware of the impact that it's, that it's having on me. But while I'm doing it, I don't necessarily feel it as much. But yeah, just to, to kind of wrap up and then pass on to you. If you don't or haven't tried meditation as an athlete, especially, I think it's really something that you should look at incorporating into your into your mental side and your preparation for for your next race or your next game. And don't be scared by or chased away from the fact that it's like a woo thing. There's, there are multiple apps or videos online nowadays that have removed sort of that spiritual, if you're not looking for that spiritual feeling of it, they've removed that spiritual side and really are focusing more on on the awareness and the consciousness of, of thought and what you're thinking and, and how to quiet down that noise. Um, yeah. And so Lauren, could I pass on to you and could you share a bit of your personal experience and if you think it's valuable or could be valuable for people that are pursuing a career in sports um, to do yeah. something like a meditation practice? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have very similar experience to you and I still, it's still an evolving practice for me. So I'm very much of a, kinesthetic person. I love to move. I love to be up and, you know, again, back to that, like in energy displacement, how do I get this out or moving? And so when I was first introduced to meditating and you are just sitting there, actually, I'm going to, this was previous line. When you are just sitting there like going through, I'm like, this isn't helpful to me. I'm too antsy. I'm too moving around. I need to move and shake and be. And when when I had gotten to a point of just like the internal noise, particularly as an adult, um, kept coming. It was like, how do I slow this down? And that's when I was like, okay, I'll go back to meditation and see what, what can this can do for me? And as I said, it's still an evolving practice for me, but what I appreciated about it most is I also started with a lot of judgment for myself, right? Cause I did have a lot, my thoughts kept coming in and I didn't know how to get them out or I beat myself up. Cause like, Oh, there I go again. I totally lost my train of thought and I totally missed the the meditation. But where I've gotten to now is it really truly is about just taking a moment to quiet the noise, quiet the outside noise, quiet the inside noise. And I've gotten much more uh, empathetic towards myself of, yeah, you're going to have thoughts come in. But you know, sometimes those thoughts come from the meditation, right? You get this I don't know if you've experienced this, Stacey, but this like almost instantaneous, like answer to, to something, right? And, you know, it may be um, you know, something I'm working on in the business or uh, an aha I've had about uh, an interaction that I've had with a friend or my husband or my kids. And it's like, oh, that's what it was. You know, it's just, it's, it, it's so valuable, whether you were an athlete or not, to, to incorporate something like this into your routine because, to drown out noise. But particularly as an athlete, and I'm a big, big, proponent, as you said, of the before, right? It's an opportunity to visualize, but not visualize in terms of what the outcome is going to be. Visualize yourself in the moment, whether it's a game, a race, a match, right? How do you, how do you want to feel? Visualize the feeling of what you're about to experience. I'm also a big proponent of meditation after the fact, you know, that's an opportunity to process that performance, whether it was a high performance or whether it was a low performance, because both can actually get you stuck, right? You can get stuck in a very high performance and just want to stay there. 
you can get very stuck in a low performance because you never want it to happen again and you beat yourself up for what happened. But if you have a meditational a meditation practice to process and just calm your entire being during that um, experience, I think that is a, a game changer in and of itself. If you, if you didn't do anything else, I think that would have a, a significant effect on any athlete's performance at any level. Yeah, I agree with you. I think a friend of mine, we often joke and we say it should be a required subject at school. You know, even if it's like 10 minutes a day, just for all the kids to sit and meditate. Look, obviously there's going to be a whole, probably about 20% of them that don't take it seriously at all and just think it's a big joke and, and kind of just, just laugh it off. But there's going to be also a large quantity of students that it's suddenly one day they'll they maybe they will take it seriously and then it clicks and they're like aha I now understand the importance of what I'm doing and obviously with age and awareness that it'll be easier for the kids to connect the benefits of of that kind of a practice yes and yeah the the last thing that I would say again to one of Lauren's points she said you know she's an antsy felt like she was getting antsy and, and a bit judgmental of herself I also noticed that because I think I. I relate to you. I'm also, I've always been a very uh, kinesthetic person. And I also felt my biggest difficulty at the beginning was just sitting still while I'm, while I was <laughs> meditating, trying to be like, Oh my gosh, I need to move my body. Um, but with time that becomes easier. And the beautiful, the beautiful thing about meditation is that there's so many different forms these days. You can do walking meditations. You can do guided meditations. You can do it you can do it seated and still, or you can do it while you're while you're moving your body. So, another thing, yeah, don't let don't let those kinds of things deter you from from starting a meditation practice because there's so many avenues or ways of getting into a practice like that. And as Lauren said, I think it, it it's extremely beneficial. Obviously, this conversation is geared more towards athletes, but anybody listening to this will really find, I think, would find benefit from doing something like that. Absolutely. Lauren, I think I'm happy to to leave it there. Is there anything you you'd like to add before you before you say your goodbyes? Uh this has been a great conversation. So many insightful questions and so many insightful points and Stacy, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on to talk with you to to bounce, you know, our perspectives off of one another. It's been a great experience. Thank you so much for giving up your time, Lauren. That's that's really what I'm what I'm trying to do with the show is is to speak to people from from different sporting backgrounds, especially sports people, because I think it's such a unique perspective that sports people have that I want to share your your perspective with my community. And thank you so much for giving up your time, Lauren. The one thing I do want to ask you, please, could you share some of your? Do you have a website? Do you do you have a, a Facebook following or Instagram following? Where can people? Um, connect with your content more or, or learn a bit more about what you do. Um, maybe there are people out there that that would like to turn to your services for some help. Absolutely. So the website is performancereimagined.com. Uh, and then for any of the maybe older part of listeners, uh, LinkedIn uh, is is a great resource, but I'm also on Instagram. My personal is at Mrs. Lauren Ammon. And then the business is at performance underscore reimagined underscore. And I can send some of those. Um, so if you'd love to follow, come, come join the community, come join the team. Uh, you know, this is really all about supporting not only just student athletes, but their coaches and their parents as well uh, to go through this journey together. 
and to empower everyone to find um, not only self-awareness, but confidence in terms of whenever it comes to their performance. As we come to the end of this episode of Speaking to Stacey, I want to say a big thanks for listening all the way through. I hope that you have found some value in the insights Lauren shared today. For more information on Performance Reimagined, please head over to the website, performancereimagined.com. Before you go, I have one last favor to ask. Please remember to subscribe to Speaking to Stacey. That way you'll never miss new episodes. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show. Remember, the more the show grows, the easier it is for me to continue to bring you beneficial content. In next week's show, I sit down with former rugby player Mike Popmeyer and we talk about playing rugby for the German national side. I hope you enjoyed the show today and I look forward to sharing this experience with you again next week. Until then, keep well.